Every morning, the world is created. Under the orange sticks of the sun, the heaped ashes of the night turn into leaves again and fasten themselves to the high branches. And the ponds appear like black cloth on which are painted islands of summer lilies. If it is your nature to be happy, you will swim away along the soft trails for hours, your imagination alighting everywhere. And if your spirit carries within it the thorn that is heavier than lead, if it's all you can do to keep on trudging, there is still somewhere deep within you a beast shouting that the earth is exactly what it wanted. Each pond with its blazing lilies is a prayer heard and answered lavishly every morning. Whether or not you have ever dared to be happy, whether or not you have ever dared to pray. Somewhere between the tumble out of bed and the morning commute, a ritual conducted with the taste of toothpaste still in my mouth and the anticipation of brewed coffee ahead, comes the greatest moment of the day, the moment I feed our bird fe- or fill our bird feeders, my daily offering to the universe, and receive the gift of chickadee, the universe's return gift to me. It is a thing I have done since childhood, a ritual as focused as Zen and as expansive as prayer. Each morning, I step into an ordinary suburb- suburban yard. I laden humble offerings into a vessel studded with perches. Then, grasping the plastic urn in both hands, I raise it to some lofty hook, step back, and am rewarded by the gift of chickadees or titmice or nuthatches or whatever the universe is serving up this morning. Usually, it is chickadees. What species? It hardly matters, but for the record, for this period in my life's journey, it's Carolina chickadee. In my youth in North Jersey, the envoys were all black cats. What is so special about this ritual? Everything. All the small things. All the interlocking elements that are gratifying in their sameness and exciting in the possibilities they unlock. I like the cold that wraps itself around me like a penitent smock, giving me kinship and standing with birds who have faced down the trials of the night. I like the wholesome smell of seed that makes me bring my nose close, inhaling deeply. I like the stretch when I battle the forces of gravity and aging joints and clothes that constrict more than they did before the holidays and feel the gratifying tug of the feeder's handle finding its hook. 
I'm assured that I have met and mastered my first challenge of the day, giving me courage to confront the rest. Internet service that won't connect, coffee makers that throw a tantrum all over the counter, printers that run out of toner. And of course, I love the moment I step back, arms to my sides, anticipation hardly in check, and see the tiny forms materialize out of the half-light, taking their perches, perhaps honoring me with a glance, or turning their backs, showing me that in this world there is still grounds for trust between living things. Okay, I'll grant that filling bird feeders is not exactly a pivotal point in the sweeping drama that is the human story. It is not as significant as, say, the invention of the wheel, the signing of the Magna Carta, the splitting of the atom, or even a sale on ground chuck at the supermarket. It doesn't matter that wild birds, being wild birds, can get along with my offer, without my offering, or that what I presume to call gratitude might more accurately be called tolerance, even indifference. I'm not looking for gratitude. Like the biblical brothers Cain and Abel, all I'm looking for is confirmation. The hungry chickadees coming in from a smoke-colored dawn give me this wrapped in the blessing of their trust. It is a complex world we live in, and far from an ideal one. There is good, there is evil, there is too much need and too little peace and too many hurtful things I would like to set right. If only I had the wisdom and if only I were given the chance. But I lack the former and it seems likely I'll not be granted the latter. One thing I know, every day I rise, there is a feeder that I can fill and there are chickadees that anticipate my offering. And this small interaction between living things is good. As good as good gives and gets. Allison Townsend uh, lives on four acres of restored prairie and oak savanna in the farm country outside Madison, Wisconsin. She teaches at the University of Wisconsin-Whitewater. As of April 2007, there were about 340 hooping cranes living in the wild and another 145 living in captivity. The hooping crane is still one of the rarest birds living in North America. All month I have wanted to speak of the cranes and how they arrived one morning, floating down out of the sky like a band of five strange angels. Landing in a farmer's field beside Rutland Duntown Road to browse for a week among last year's corn stalks, each bird picking its way through the mud, deliberate as a meditating monk or nun. I have wanted to say how white they were against the brown, their feathers packed densely over their bodies 
as snow had been over the land just a few weeks before. How their red caps of pebbly skin were balanced on the top of each head like a perfectly aligned beret. How their legs were black as the bare trees, that same black brushed on their wings' tips and mustaches. And how elegant their necks were, the long trachea coiled twice inside their breastbones, resonant as a French horn swoop. I have wanted to say how enormous our silence was as we sat staring at these creatures, trained to migrate south behind an ultralight, then returning north on their own. Finding their way back to Nasida, red and yellow ID tags and transmitters chinking around their legs like five and dime bracelets. I've wanted to say how they held us in their gaze, only seeming to ignore us, the bright golden sun of each eye watching as we watched them. And how, when we least expected it, the cranes began to dance, rising effortlessly, then parachuting down, bowing, jumping, flapping their wings in that movement we call courtship, though it can happen at any age and season. I have wanted to say how silence continued to hold us in the small, warm world of the car, how our hands touched briefly at seeing this together, and how all the rest of the day, as I bent over my papers, the cranes seemed to float inside my body, their great white wings opening and closing like doors in the sky. Rachel Carson. Then the vapor rises. Wow. 
of wild things by Wendell Berry. When despair for the world grows in me, and I awake in the night at the least sound in fear of what my life and my children's lives may be, I go and lie down where the wood drake rests in his beauty on the water, and the great heron feeds. I come into the peace of wild things who do not tax their lives with forethought of grief. I come into the peace of wild things. I come into the presence of still water, and I feel above me the day-blind stars waiting with their light. For a time, I rest in the grace of the world, and I am free. Thank you. 
poem I'm going to read to you is uh, at the gate of the ancient forest, and there's a little meditation place where you can sit. And I recently visited the ancient forest, and as I meandered through, I kind of thought he might be shouting at me. Lost by David Wagner. Stand still. The trees ahead and the bushes beside you are not lost. Wherever you are is called here. And you must treat it as a powerful stranger, must ask permission to know it and be known. The forest breathes. Listen. It answers, I have made this place around you, and if you leave it, you may come back again, saying, here. No two branches are the same to the raven. No two branches are the same to the wren. And if what a tree or a bush does is lost on you, you are surely lost. Stand still. The forest knows where you are. You must let it find you. The Web by Allison Hawthorne Deming. Is it possible there is a certain kind of beauty as large as the trees that survived the 500-year fire, the 50-year flood? Trees we can't comprehend even standing beside them with outstretched arms to gauge their span. A certain kind of beauty so strong so deeply concealed in relationship, black truffle to red-backed vole to spotted owl to Douglas fir, bats and gnats, beetles and moss, flying squirrel and the high-rise of a snag, each needing and feeding the other, a conversation so Quiet, the human world can vanish into it. A beauty moves in such a place, like snowmelt seething through the fungal mats that underlie and interlace the giant firs. Tunneling under streams where cutthroat fry live a meter deep in gravel. A beauty blooming downstream over rocks. That, hold, that have a hold on place, lasting longer than most nations, sluicing under deadfall spanners that rise and float to let floodwaters pass, a beauty that fills the space of the forest with music that can erupt as buried thrush or warbler, calypso orchid or stream violet. Forest, a conversation, not an argument. A beauty gathering such clarity and force, it breaks the mind's fearful hold on its little moments, 
steeping it in a more dense intelligibility within which centuries and distances answer each other and speak at last with one and the same voice. This Ground Made of Trees by Allison Hawthorne Deming. The giants have fallen. I think I can hear the echo of their slow composition, the centuries passing as note by note they fall into the forest's silent music. Moss has run over their backs. Mushrooms has sprung from the moss. Mold has coated the fungal caps, and the heartwood has given itself to muffled percussion of insect and microbe, that carpet of sound that gives the forest its rhythm. A nuthatch twits, a vole creeps. The scent of decay rises like steam from a stew pot. Anywhere I set my foot, a, a million lives work at metabolizing what has gone before them. The day is shortening, and the winter winds have something to say about that. I can almost give thanks that the soil will claim me. But first, allow me, dear life, a few more words of praise for this ground made of trees, where everything is an invitation to lie down in the moss for good and become, finally, really useful to pull close the drapery of lichen and let the night birds call me home.
of Turkey Vultures. That's a poem by H.C. Palmer. Prairie artisans sail from their roost, muted flights to ride the morning thermal, that long-winged ritual of tilting, wheeling, searching for the dead and dying. There will be no sacrament of last rites, Dissection and digestion is their craft, transforming a carcass to vapor and dust. The real work, what is to be done? The Worst Trap in the World by Jules Older. So very many traps, danger lurks everywhere. There's the rat trap, the velvet trap, the parent trap, the wolf trap, the trap family singer's trap. <laughs> but the worst trap is the can't do anything until you do everything trap. That's the trap with the biggest, baddest teeth. That's the trap that immobilizes you even before you take the first step. That's what makes it the worst trap in the world. Say for an example, you're an outdoors type. Say a skier, or a snowshoer, or a mountain hiker. And you're getting a little concerned about the whole global warming thing. Overall, this has been a good snow year. 
but you remember last winter, and you can't help but wonder which is the new norm and which is the aberration. So you decide to take the first step, something small, like changing the light bulbs, or carpooling to the mountain, or buying gas miser. Whatever, it's your first step. You tell a friend your plans. The friend sets the can't do anything until you do everything trap. It goes like this. Change the bulbs? That's completely ridiculous. You've got, what, six bulbs? Ten? You think your puny little bulbs are going to have any effect whatsoever on the planet? Don't flatter yourself. Or like this. Carpool, that saves how much gas? Do you know how much more a 747 uses just taxiing down the runway? Like one zillion times more. Forget about it. Or this. Why not buy a Hummer? I'm telling you. <laughs> and this is a fact. Until capitalism is overthrown, until sexism and militarism are bought to their knees, but all means nothing. Here's the truth. Our snows are at real risk. Our forests are at real risk. Our planet is at real risk. Your first step combined with my first step and his first step and her first step may or may not be enough to turn the risk around. Working together, can we save the snow, the woods, the earth? Don't know. Too early to tell. Or maybe too late. But what we do know and know for sure is this. You and I and she and he, if we don't take the first step, we let ourselves fall into the jaws of the can't-do-anything-until-you-do-everything trap. We're turning up the heat and cooling and not cooling our corner of the globe. If we let ourselves get talked out of taking the first step and the second step, we may just end up kissing our cool corner goodbye forever. Mother Nature by Meg Barnhouse. A few years ago, I was preaching a sermon about depression, and I mentioned that adults who were neglected as children have a high incidence of depression. Scientists experimented on poor little rat babies, taking them from their poor little rat mamas for a couple of days at a time, then finding chemicals in their spinal fluid when they grew up that were different from the chemicals in other rats. I just happened to mention that I felt sorry for the little rat babies, having to be experimented on, and then I mentioned that I wished instead that they had done the experiment on little possum babies. Since there is a possum family that takes turns waking me up at midnight and then again at 5 a.m., going out and coming in to their apartment, which they have moved into under my house. 
I am mad at all possums these days because they don't care at all if I sleep well. Three days after I said that about the possums, I got an email from a woman in my church who is much kinder and more compassionate than I. She said she wished I would find it in my heart to express more compassion toward the little possum babies. She added that this message wasn't really from her. It was from her mother nature. Usually when I get a note like that, I try to search it for criticism that might be helpful to me and then shrug the rest off. That's a lie. I get mad and defensive first. (laughs) Vow vengeance and compose a long letter of self-justification. Then I calm down, look for what might be useful, delete all the stinky things I wrote, and thought, and try to shrug the rest off. Her letter got me thinking about Mother Nature and the possum babies. The nature worshipers now roll their eyes when people tell them what a sweet and nurturing deity the mother must be. How tender it must be to worship her. Many of them have had actual experience with nature. You know, like outdoors in the winter, in the woods in the summer, living in a body, ticks, roaches, frostbite, mosquitoes, cancer. I decided not to answer this gentle letter of suggestion for my spiritual development, but it was not to be that easy uh, to behave myself. In a crowd at the spring home show at the downtown auditorium, there she was by a display of wooden shutters. Did you get my note, she said sweetly. Yes, I did. Thank you. Not equally sweetly, but almost. I just felt it was something you would want to think about, she said. It wasn't even a message from me. It was from her. Okay, I have trouble with people speaking for God. Always have. Whenever someone says they have a message for me from the Spirit, it puts my back up. I don't care whether people call God him or her, Allah, Yamaya, or Nana. I have trouble with messages delivered to me through people who want to improve me. If I were wiser, my father used to say, I would love reproof. Maybe I'll get there someday. The message was from her, I asked. Okay, I have a message for you to give back to Mother Nature from me. (laughs) The woman started to protest. I raised my hand. Oh, no, please let me finish. If you want to talk about caring for possum babies, you tell her I care much more than she apparently does because even with my feelings about them, I have not killed one yet. She, on the other hand, presides over the deaths of thousands of babies, not only possums, but animals of every kind. And she gives no evidence of caring. I mean, you and I could freeze to death in the woods and still hang silver in the branches. The moon would still hang silver in the branches. The stars would look on undimmed 
as our little lights went out. When it comes to callousness, I've got nothing on her. I can't hold a candle for her to see by. A little part of me was watching and saying, Maggie, you're ranting. This woman has taken three steps backward. She does not deserve this. But I couldn't stop. I used to have a friend who would chide me for pulling living pansies out of my garden when they had grown leggy and wild. I should let nature take its course, she said. Listen, I would tell her, if I were letting nature take its course, I wouldn't have planted pansies in the first place. There would be weeds there. I'm a gardener. I pull some things up so the other things can go in their place. I don't fault Mother Nature for having a cavalier attitude toward life and death. A feeling for the sanctity of life is something for which there is not the slightest smidgen of evidence in nature. You have to have death so there's room for life to go on. I don't want it to be mine or my children's or my beloved's death, but those will happen eventually. I hope when we're very old. I'm going to keep pulling out pansies when it's their time to go. I don't know when it will be the possum's time to go. <laughs> if I could just get a good night's sleep, I know I could figure it out. 